0: You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit CovBapt.org now, today's sermon. Well, I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. We are in the 47th of 48 messages in Romans, kind of hard to believe, that the series has come and gone. Those of you who use the preaching calendar that's published in the bulletin and is published in the e-newsletter, we publish that quarterly so you can know what's coming down the pike as far as sermon passages and sermon series. Those of you who use that and have been reading this text this week might be thinking, I wonder what he's going to say, particularly from the first 16 verses of this passage. Truth in advertising, public service announcement, just letting you in on my own heart and mind and frame, most weeks that I am going to be preaching God's word here, I ask myself and I ask the Lord that very same question every Thursday morning, what am I going to say? Just feeling the, the frailty of my flesh and feeling the weakness that it is to be a sinner saint sometimes. Lord, what am I going to say? And then God is always faithful. As I study his word, as you pray for me, the Lord serves us all each Lord's day when we open his word. Now, certainly it is true that all of scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Amen. All of it. Certainly, it is also true that not all passages are as important as others. That's true. Having said that, we are all prone to read passages like Romans 16, 1 through 16, and kind of gloss over them, sort of skim over the top. I mean, what's the ongoing significance for my life, for your life, of Paul thanking and commending various saints for their service in the church in Rome. What's the ongoing significance? We tend to think the same way about the lists of names we find elsewhere in the Bible, do we not? Take the genealogies in the Old Testament, how many of us in our Bible reading plans just kind of skip by those or mindlessly read them. Not sure what to do with them. But you see, these lists of names that we find in the scriptures, they all preach a message about Jesus. Not sure if you've thought of it that way. They do. They are in the Bible because of Jesus. That's true in the Old Testament. You know, Genesis 3.15, where God promises that there would be one who would come, the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, that great promise of God is accomplished. And we see the unfolding of the accomplishment of that great promise throughout the rest of Scripture from Genesis 3.15 to the end. The genealogies of the Old Testament get us to Jesus. They teach us more of the promised seed of the woman who would save us all. They teach us of God's grace and mercy. I mean, think of some of the characters that we find in the line of the promised redeemer. They're just like you, just like me. The last of these kinds of genealogies that get us to Christ and show us the line of the Savior are found in Matthew and Luke. But there are other New Testament genealogies like the one found in our passage today. The difference in the genealogy found in our passage today and the ones that have come before is that the people in Romans 16 are not related by blood, at least not their own. They are related by the blood of the Savior. It is faith in Christ and union with him that relates these saints that we read about we're going to think about today. And it's that same blood of the lamb that unites us here and with saints across the world who are doing this very same thing today. My hope is that we see in our text today, even more of the Lord's plan to save his people. As we continue to hold that diamond up, that is the good news and look at it from every possible angle. I pray that we will see more of it, that we will see more of the good and gracious ways That God works to establish and advance his kingdom. That we will see more of the vigilance that we're called to in the church. This matters. And I pray that we see more of the certainty of our hope in Christ, the right man who's on our side. Now, you remember where we are in Paul's letter to the Romans After having expounded the gospel and a number of things related to it for 11 chapters, Paul began in Romans 12 to consider more pointedly how we are to live as Christians. Particularly beginning in Romans 14, sort of more immediate context of where we find ourselves today, Paul emphasizes yet again unity in the church and love for one another. He emphasizes how important it is that the saints not pass judgment on each other on account of Christ. That we would instead bear with one another in our weakness on account of Christ. Paul explains to us that it is our love for each other that would govern us, particularly when it comes to the exercising of our freedoms. Paul makes plain that Jesus and Jesus alone is the basis of our unity. And this is because Jesus is the only hope of every Christian, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're weak or whether you're strong. Then toward the end of Romans 15, as we considered two or three weeks ago now, Paul commends the saints in Rome and expresses his confidence in them. He says that he's written boldly to them on some things, i.e. what he has written in this letter. He's written these things to them by way of reminder because of the ministry that he's been given as an apostle. He then writes of what Christ has done through him amongst the Gentiles and points to how his own apostolic ministry and the ministry of the apostles is a fulfillment of what the prophets had written. How the gospel would go to the nations and how God would save people from every tribe and language and nation. Paul expresses repeatedly his hope and desire to come to Rome to be with the saints there. He expects that he will be encouraged in the faith by being with them and that they in turn will be encouraged by him. And he earnestly appeals to the saints in Rome to pray for him. To pray for his safety, for his ongoing ministry, and for his hope of visiting them. That's where we've been. So let's now look to Romans chapter 16. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, As to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. My plan this morning is to consider this passage in four points, and we'll take them one at a time. Point one, verses one to 16. A new covenant genealogy. Point one, a new covenant genealogy. So, in these verses, again, verses 1 through 16, Paul commends and greets various saints who are in Rome. Three major things for us to notice and for us to contemplate this morning. Three. The first, and this is in no particular order is the interconnectedness of the saints in the church of the first century. The interconnectedness of the saints. Paul, you know, because we considered this just a few weeks ago, had never been to the church in Rome. Yet, he had clearly worked alongside many of the saints that were now a part of that church. Others, perhaps he only knew from a distance. But he knew them, and they knew him. This is significant for us even today. It is without debate that the primary venue for our Christian living is in our local church. Amen. We talk about that often. Paul has written much on life in the local church. The other epistles in the New Testament contain much about our lives in our local church with our brothers and sisters and all of the things that we are to do for and with one another. Amen to all of that. And at the same time, it is clearly good that our church would partner with other churches, that our people would partner with other believers in order to advance the cause of Christ. This has been happening from the beginning of the church. And it is a good thing that it happened in an ongoing way. It is good that we would support and partner with other like-minded believers, perhaps even in parachurch ministries, to see good things accomplished. It is good that our pastors would have relationships with other pastors. It is good that our people would have relationships with other believers in other places doing good ministry in other churches. Now, we could spend a long time in a different venue talking about wisdom in those partnerships, talking about different levels of agreement that are needed for different kinds of partnerships. That's all legitimate to consider. But just to give a few examples of ways that our church means to have meaningful relationships and partnerships outside of these walls. We are a part of something called the Grace Reform Network, as our members know. Another, or It's a network of other like-minded, confessional Baptist churches with whom we can lock arms and seek to do good work over the coming decades, should the Lord tarry. Through the ministry of Theocast, we've gotten to know a number of other like-minded believers in various locales. We thank the Lord for those friendships and for those partnerships in the gospel. We have partnerships with our friends at Nine Marks who are seeking to publish good resources on healthy ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. The elders, as you have heard a couple of times already today, just spent a couple of days in Mexico with our friends from Radius International, who are seeking to train missionaries to take the gospel to places where it has never gone, and are training people to see a healthy church established where there never has been one. It's good that we have these kinds of partnerships. In addition, we can partner with people who are perhaps even more separated from us in terms of their confessional tradition. We have our friend Chad Bird coming in April. He is a confessional Lutheran, and we agree with him about so much when it comes to the law and the gospel and discipleship and who Christ is for us. I could go on. But these kinds of relationships and this kind of interconnectedness is good for the church and it's good for the saints. This is primary, it always will be, and this is not all that we concern ourselves with. We see that even in Romans 16. The next thing for us to observe that is significant is the diversity of this group of people. The diversity of this group of people. Now, sadly, that word has been hijacked and co-opted in many ways in our day, but it's a good word. It's plain in the scriptures, and it's plain in Romans 16, that God's saving grace extends to all kinds of people in all walks of life. The kingdom of Christ is significantly diverse. Take this text, male and female, Jew and Gentile, married and single, slaves and freedmen, people of high social and political status and people of no status whatsoever. All a part of Christ's kingdom, all saved by him to the praise of God's grace and glory. Just briefly in surveying the text, in verse 5, there's a man named Epinatus, who was a Gentile, the first convert in Asia. And no doubt, a foundation stone for the church there. In verses 8 and 9, we read about Ampliatus and Urbanus and Stachus who were most likely Gentile slaves. There's Aristobulus in verse 10, who is likely the grandson of Herod the Great and a friend of the emperor, Claudius. There's Herodian in verse 11, who was likely a Jewish freedman in Herod's household because it was common, you see, for people who had been slaves and then became free to take the name of their patron. All of these saints from these various walks of life With these various backgrounds, we're ministering in the church in various capacities. Praise God for that. Our ministry in the church is in no way directly tethered to our station in this life. We're going to continue to think about diversity by our third observation. And that is the ministry of women. The ministry of women. Let's consider Phoebe for just a moment. Verses 1 and 2. Phoebe was the one, this is universally agreed upon. Phoebe was the person to bring Paul's letter to the church in Rome. That's a significant responsibility. She is entrusted with this letter to deliver to this church. Clearly, hers was a significant ministry to be entrusted with such a responsibility. In verse one, your ESV reads, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at synchrea That word servant is literally the word. She was a deacon of the church in synchrea diaconos is the word. This just... This is good for us to touch on as we have opportunity from the scriptures. This reality that Phoebe is referred to as a deacon of the church in synchrea, along with the language of 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, where the word for woman, the women of them literally, appears in the qualifications for deacons. Putting these things together is why... Exegetically, we at Covenant Baptist Church desire and have ordained women to the office of deacon, to serve this congregation in that capacity. And there have been a number of our sisters at this point who have served this congregation in that particular way. Alongside the biblical pieces of this, in our confessional tradition, there were women serving as deacons in confessional Baptist churches in England over 300 years ago. That is not nothing. And we're thankful to the Lord for the ways that he uses men and women to minister and serve in the church. Next, we come to Priscilla and Aquila in verses 3 and 4. Here, the name is Prisca, but it is Priscilla and Aquila, whom Paul calls his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In Acts chapter 18, we get a little bit more light shed on this husband and wife, ministry team, where they clearly were involved in doing a lot of teaching and training, including instructing a man named Apollos in the faith in Acts 18. Apollos, who is famous for his ability to preach the gospel, is trained and instructed by Priscilla and Aquila. There's Andronicus and Junia, you find in verse 7. Again, this is another husband and wife team who we see were imprisoned with Paul for the ministry they were doing. Significant. And then there's Trithana and Tryphosa, referred to by Paul in verse 12. Two sisters who Paul refers to as workers in the Lord. So let's take these things that we've been observing from these verses and seek to apply them a little bit more for us here at CBC. Now, first, I I want to uh, seek to apply this to the women, to the sisters here. So guys in the room, don't tune out because this is us, right? This is our church. This is our congregation. We are a part of this, yet I want to speak directly to the sisters in the room, As always, it's possible for you to hear what I'm not saying over the next few minutes, but I trust that that will not happen, that you will hear what I, on behalf of our pastors, mean to communicate, and nothing other than that. So sisters, I I trust that some of you perhaps have come from a context or grew up in one where you were told that the way, definite article, the way you glorify God is to get married, serve your husband, have children, and raise them. Full stop. Where you were told explicitly or implicitly that for you to directly do ministry in the church is not your calling. Except maybe to serve in the nursery and Provide meals. Rather, your calling is to help your husband's ministry flourish. That's why you exist. Perhaps you were told or it was implicitly communicated that it's cool for you to talk doctrine in the Christian life with other women or with children but that you need to be quiet about doctrine and quiet about the Christian life around men. You just listen. Now, don't get me wrong. So don't hear what I'm not saying. It is a good thing to love your husband if you're married. Amen. It is a good thing to, with him, manage your household. It is a good thing to, with him, raise your children if you have them. Yet, sisters, beloved of the Lord, your ministry in the kingdom of Christ and in this local church is far more than just getting married and having children. I'm saying this as a man and as one of the pastors of this church. Sisters of CBC, you serve the Lord with us. You labor alongside us. And it is an honor to walk with you and to serve our king with you. This is how Paul writes. It's hard to read the New Testament and not come away thinking, man, women were far more involved in the ministry of the first century church than they are in serious-minded evangelical and reform contexts today. It's hard to not think that and draw that conclusion. Sisters of this church, your pastors Understand you to be co laborers with us in the gospel. And as I've already said, we are honored to serve Jesus with you and we are thankful for you. We are blessed and helped by you. This entire congregation is blessed and helped by you. You, sisters, have gifts that the Lord has given you, and our desire is that you would use them for the cause of Christ here at CBC and beyond. Many of you are already doing that, exercising and using the gifts that you've been given, and those gifts are bearing fruit in this church. And we praise the Lord for that. And what you are doing, do so all the more. For those sisters who are unsure of how you might be equipped by the Lord to serve and minister. The counsel is simple. It's the counsel we would give every member of CBC. Get involved. Where there are needs in the church, jump in to meet them. And the Lord will make it plain over the course of time as we live together, how you are best equipped to serve the king and to serve even this local body. There's a song called Brethren We Have Met to Worship. Many are familiar with it. There's a verse in that song that goes this way. Sisters, will you join and help us? Moses' sister aided him. Will you help the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin? Tell them all about the Savior. Tell them he will be found. Sisters, pray, and holy manna will be showered all around. That kind of ministry, even described in that song, tell them about the Savior. Help the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin. Tell them that Jesus will be found and he will find and save you. Tell people that. That's a ministry far greater than simply caring for children or making meals. Now, I want to apply these verses to all of us, male and female. My prayer for myself and for you is that you feel what I'm about to say. It is, it's a great privilege and it's a great joy to serve the Lord together in the church. The Lord is so good to us. He has called all of the members of this church from darkness to light. From death to life. Kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. God did that. He has caused us to be made alive together with Christ. Or as Peter writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, oh. Looking out over this room, thinking of the members of Covenant Baptist Church, we are all different. Different backgrounds, different experiences, we're different ages, different genders and ethnicities, different stations in life, different callings and vocations in this world. And yet, All of us have been made one. We've been made one in Christ, our king, our head. And we are all a part of his body. Now, it is wonderful to think of eternity, to think of the life to come. It is wonderful to think that we will spend forever with the Lord and with all of the saints from all time. Is that not an epic thought? It is. And how sweet that we, saints of Covenant Baptist Church, get to share this life together. Like, look around. This is participatory. Look around at the saints in the room. Look at these dear people. Make eye contact with somebody. And think about this, that in God's good providence, Our lives, this side of the resurrection, are intertwined. Is that not kind of God? That we get to share this life together and serve the Lord in this life together. We are disciples in this life together. We'll spend forever with all the saints. And we also get to share this with each other now in light of the hope that is to come. That's a sweet thing. We serve and labor. We laugh and we cry. We eat and drink. There are weddings and there will be funerals. We rejoice and we grieve. We, us, we do those things. Mackenzie? Rob, Jason, I serve with you, not other pastors. And it's a privilege and an honor to do it. Deacons of the church, you serve with one another. You serve this congregation. You serve these pastors. Covenant Baptist Church. We walk in love and serve each other together. We, us. What a privilege and a joy and an honor it is to share this life in light of the hope of the next one. May we feel that. May that stir up love in your heart towards your brothers and sisters the affection that we have for one another, may that flame be fanned by thinking about these things. What a privilege and a joy and an honor it is to seek to build Christ's church here in Asheville, North Carolina. This is where the Lord has us. And may he continue to work in and through us for the renown of Christ to the praise of his grace and glory. May it be. That's all point one. That's the longest of the four. By quite a bit. Point two. An exhortation regarding those who would harm the church. Point two is an exhortation regarding those who would harm the church. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. See, need the other water bottle. It doesn't have a lid on it. So in these verses you see, that Paul makes an earnest appeal to the church in Rome. He says that they are to watch out for those who cause divisions and who create obstacles contrary to the sound doctrine that they have been taught. What is that sound doctrine? We would understand it to be none other than the doctrine that Paul has been writing now for over 15 chapters, right? The doctrine that Paul has laid out quite plainly of the law of God. In particular, how because of God's law, all human beings are held accountable to God and everybody's mouth is shut because no fallen human being can accomplish the righteousness that God requires. Can't be done. And therefore, the only righteousness that could ever be attained, that could ever be had by a fallen sinner is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that God gives, received by faith. That doctrine is sound. The sufficiency of Christ as a savior, how he is all of our salvation from the beginning to the end. And our union with him will win the day from our justification where we are declared righteous by God, forgiven of our sins, absolved of our guilt as we trust him to our sanctification where the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit will continue to work in and through us to conform us to his image, to our glorification where we will be raised incorruptible, imperishable, where we will take possession of that eternal inheritance that is ours and is unshakable because of Jesus, that doctrine that nothing in all of the universe could ever separate us from him. The doctrine that While we are on the one hand saints who have been declared righteous because we have faith in Christ and he is now our representative. We are at the same time battling the corruption of our flesh. And that we often don't do the good we want to do. And we often find ourselves not doing the good we want doing the things that are evil that we want to refrain and abstain from. We find ourselves like John Newton said, Regularly in a position where we're saying, Lord, I'm a riddle to myself. I'm so inconsistent, I don't know what to do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? That doctrine. The internal war that is the normative experience of the believer. That doctrine. The certain hope of bodily resurrection. The certainty that God has and will save all of his people from the Jews and from the Gentiles. That doctrine. On life in the church, characterized by love and humility and unity as we use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. That sound doctrine. Avoid all people, says Paul, that would erect obstacles and barriers to that truth. These people who cause these divisions and create obstacles to sound doctrine, you can see this in verse 18. Paul says that they don't serve Jesus. They serve their own appetites, their own bellies, literally. And they sound really good doing it. You see that in the latter part of verse 18. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They're smooth talkers. They flatter. They say things, man, it feels good, sounds good. About me. Makes me feel good about me. Not makes me feel good about Christ, right? They flatter me. It's really important that we would see that these people that Paul is referring to in verses 17 and 18 represent a stark contrast to the saints who were described in the first 16 verses of this chapter. These people in verses 17 and 18 should rightly be viewed as seed of the serpent, as being of the evil one, as opposed to being right the children of God. These people would have a different father. We've referenced Genesis 3.15 already where God says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and her offspring, he, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, ultimately and redemptively, we know that this verse describes Christ and his triumph over the evil one. And we can also trace through Scripture two lines of people, beginning with Cain and Seth. Abel, of course, was killed by Cain, and the Lord provided Seth as an, another son for Adam and Eve. Beginning there, I mean, we can see it. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Children of promise, children of the flesh. Those whose father is God and those whose father is the devil. Think about Jesus in John chapter 8. He said to his audience, who were continued, they had already been appealing to Abraham as their father. And then they stated that God was their father to which Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning And has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The reason I bring these things up is that it's very important that we would know and see that since the founding of the church, there have been feed of the serpent who infiltrate the church with evil purposes. We sometimes refer to these people as wolves right? who seek to devour and destroy the sheep. This is an ever present reality. These people infiltrate the church to set up obstacles to the sound doctrine of Christ, to obscure Jesus, and to cause division in the body of Christ. I trust this is plain, but in verses 17 and 18, the people in view are not misguided Christians, right? Christians can be sincerely wrong about doctrine or practice. That's obvious, that can be hard in the church. But that's not what's in view here. The goal of these people is to subvert sound doctrine and to cause factions to arise in the church, to split the body of Christ. That is the goal. For all of us, pastors, deacons, church members, for all of us, this is clearly a call to vigilance. That we together would understand yes, under the leadership of the pastors, but that we collectively would guard the gospel and that we would guard sound doctrine. There are a number of different ways that we do that. Primarily, we aim to preach it week over week from this pulpit. We try to cultivate other opportunities for us to learn sound doctrine in our church's life. But then, as we've said many, many times, for you, dear Christian, you know the gospel that has saved you. If there is ever a pastor in this pulpit preaching a different word, fire him. Fire him. Get rid of him. There are mechanisms for that. And it should be done. We guard the truth of the scriptures. We guard sound doctrine. We, like Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, are happy. We want to be warm and charitable people. And we are happy to throw sharp elbows when it comes to the clarity of the gospel. We make it crystal clear that it is all of Christ or it's all of you. There's no middle ground. If you would accept the work of the law as even a small piece of your righteousness, you better keep the whole thing. We say that all the time. Christ alone, Jesus and his obedience as your obedience, his death as the propitiation and the atonement for your sins. His resurrection as your eternal life. It is always and only Jesus. We start there. We never swerve. We never deviate. We preach it from the rooftops. We point each other to it. We speak this way day over day, week over week, and we trust the Lord. We do everything that we can to promote unity and guard against division. In the interest of time, I want to move on to point three. An exhortation to be wise. An exhortation to be wise from verse 19. So Paul, again, is going to commend the saints in Rome. You see that. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice in you. What a good word again from the apostle to encourage these people in the Lord. As you are doing, do so all the more, like he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4. right? It's a good way to speak to the saints. He says that they are eager and ready to obey the will of God as they have learned it. He exhorts them to be wise as to what is good. Discernment is clearly required of the saints because of things that we just considered. But then he also exhorts them to be innocent. As to what is evil. So in other words, don't become well-versed in things that are evil. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not good to develop cunning or skill pertaining to things that are evil. It is good for the sons of light to be shrewd in this life. Amen. Particularly for the cause of Christ. But it is not good that we dwell on the sinful ways of mankind. It is good that we would be unpracticed in the ways of sin. Now, that's not a call to be naive or utterly oblivious to the ways of the world. And I trust you understand that. Practically, how do we grow in our wisdom toward what is good and in being innocent toward what is evil? Well, we learn, first of all, God's revealed will. What is that? this, right? God's will, his revealed will for our lives is contained in his scripture. We learn it. We sit under the preaching of it Sunday over Sunday. We gather with groups or with individuals in this church to talk about the scriptures. We take advantage of opportunities that are provided in the church to learn more. We spend time reading the scriptures in light of the ways that we have been taught to understand it as a congregation. We learn sound doctrine, which is accomplished in the same ways that I just described. We seek individually and collectively to set our minds on things that are above, that are good and upright and pure. It's good to laugh. It's good to joke. It's wonderful to have a great time with each other. And we never encourage one another to set our minds on things that would distract us from what we're here to do. We never encourage one another to set our minds on things that would lead us into sin. There is a distinction and a line there. I would encourage us all to have conversations with each other or have conversations with your pastors about doctrine or the Christian life or wisdom so that we can learn and sharpen and grow with each other. Consider the ways that God has made the world. There is a law that he has written into creation. Talk to each other about these things. Ask your pastors about it. Have conversations in which you engage with something called the light of nature, where we continue to learn and grow about what's good for mankind and what is detrimental to us all. These things will help us to be wise as to what is good and will help us to better see what is evil. Point four. This is our conclusion from verse 20. A strong promise. A strong promise. The verse reads, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, Jesus, we know, has bruised Satan's head the first time he came. He bruised his head at Calvary. As we've rejoiced over many times, Jesus has bound the strong man who is the adversary and he has set God's people free. And there is coming a day when the evil one will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. That's coming. Jesus will most certainly and finally crush Satan under his feet. There's a cosmic war, you understand, that's going on, and we are in it. I know we don't often talk like that, but it's good that we would. We don't wage war against flesh and blood. You've read that somewhere. We wage war against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, In the heavenly places. That's what we do. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? In this war, we don't stand in our own strength. How could we? Against the powers and the principalities of the kingdom of darkness, how would we stand in our own strength? Against Satan, the great adversary, who is immensely powerful. The great accuser of the brethren. We stand in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we put on the armor of God. And as we have rejoiced before, the armor of God is not about your ability and your diligence in putting it on. The armor of God and the point of that entire text is not that we would extrapolate out 17 different things that the helmet is or 14 different things that the breastplate means. It's that we would understand who, is our armor. He is the right man who's on our side. Lord Sabbath, Lord of hosts is his name. He is our armor in the ward. If you're sitting here today and you're a Christian, be encouraged. If you're sitting here today and you're not sure, listen closely. As you think about God and Satan, heaven and hell. And there's something about that that rings true in your soul. And deep down, if you were honest, you would admit it. I'm afraid. What's the answer? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness is that? Yours? Mine? Don't think so. Christ. Christ for you. Dear friend, you will never achieve righteousness on your own under the law. Only Jesus in your place. Trust him. Righteousness. He is the breastplate of righteousness that would shield us from flaming darts of the evil one. Put on the helmet of salvation. Whose salvation is that? Who did it? Salvation is of the Lord. He has accomplished salvation. His mighty arm has gone out to save. He is not weak. His arm is not short. He will save all of his people. Put on the helmet of God's salvation that you would receive with an open hand. You won't work for it. You'll receive it by faith. Take up the shield of faith. What is faith other than an open hand to receive everything that I'm not, to receive everything that I have never accomplished and never could, to receive from Christ forgiveness and righteousness and absolution and life, the shield of faith. And the object of our faith is the only way that we would ever be shielded from all of the assaults of the evil one and from all of the flaming darts that the kingdom of darkness would hurl our way. May you be encouraged that Christ is the armor of God for you, believer. And with this war in mind and with Christ as your armor in mind, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Listen to words from earlier in the chapter or in the letter to the Romans. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We stand in him. He is our refuge and our righteousness. He is the rock that is higher than we are. He is our fortress. He is our armor. He will not lose any of us. We are in his hands and no one will ever pluck us out. Now, we can know that in him, God will soon crush Satan under our feet. What a crazy statement that is. Now keep listening. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That verse gets ripped out of context a bunch. But in light of everything that we've just been saying and thinking about, what a word that is. You're doggone right. In him, we are more than conquerors because he will defeat the evil one and will crush Satan under our feet. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, this is that kingdom stuff, right? Warfare stuff. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Prince of Darkness Grim but we tremble not for him, right? One little word will fail him. That word is father. We call God father because of what Christ has accomplished. The Lord loves us and he's with us. One day we will be with him in the ways that he has always planned. Between now and then, let's love, let's live, let's serve, and let's take heart. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray.